I appreciate Adam just praying for Chris. So this is uh, Chris Bannon. Um, if you are new, I am the pastor here at the Sanctuary, and Chris has been a good friend of mine and a good friend of ours, even though those of you who haven't actually met him uh, for a long time. He's planting a church in New Hampshire uh, with the denomination, the network that we're a part of, and uh, it's just really exciting in Rochester, New Hampshire. He has been, uh, we have pictures like the two of us in a crib together. That's how long we have known each other. Uh, we roomed together in college. We've played music together and now to be planting churches uh, in a way alongside one another in the same network has just been an unbelievable blessing. Um, And so I wanted to invite you actually before he comes up and and, uh, preaches to do what we often do, just to stand for the reading of the word. Uh, And this text today is, I think, incredibly um, apropos for the the struggle and brokenness we see in our world and uh, just given the, even the prayer time we had this morning with Derek and I, Next slide. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's probably a missed opportunity, but I am glad that no photo was found to display to you all the crib meeting Andrew and myself, and yes, I, I am uh, planting a church with a great team of people in Rochester, New Hampshire. We, we are the very beginning stages now. We signed officially back in April, so about four months in, and, it, and so they're actually meeting at, at this very moment, and, uh, and so I appreciate your prayer for me and for them, because being away on a Sunday with a four-and-a-half-month church plant is kind of like being a parent and leaving a four and a half month child at home saying, well, I'll be back in a few days. There's fried chicken in the fridge and uh, the coffee maker. <laughs> so, uh, and I must be feeling a little anxious because I, I started this day by like walking into the wrong bathroom here. So I might just be a little, so sorry about that. Um, your signs are a little vague. Just going to throw it out there. Our story begins this way, this morning. See, Jesus, he had just recently begun his public ministry. He'd been teaching, he's been uh, traveling around teaching in synagogues, he's healing the sick, he's freeing the spirits, the oppressed, and as a rabbi, he's beginning to gather his initial group of disciples, and people are starting to take notice. Word, word starts to get out about this Jesus, and suddenly it's hard for him to go almost anywhere without gathering uh, a pretty massive crowd. And these people, these are the people who are they're sick, and they're they're hurting. These are people who are who are looking for hope. And then, in addition to those people, there's a whole crowd of other people that are just curious to find out what all this fuss is about. And Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us that Jesus, on one occasion, he looks out and he sees this, these crowds, just this mass of humanity. And he heads a ways up a nearby hill, a small mountain, and his disciples join him there. And it's there that he sits down, he takes the posture of a teacher in that day, and he begins to teach. And he says to them, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he goes on, and we have a 12-verse prologue, basically, to one of the best-known bodies of teaching in all the world. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with these 12 verses that are often known as the Beatitudes. But it begins this way. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus begins his teaching this way. And it's a well-known and it's, it's, it's a body of teaching, especially those beatitudes that are in some ways familiar to a fault. We, we know them. We, we are, they are familiar to us. But in many ways, it is common for us, I believe, to, to read them and understand them poorly. It's been often said that in the beatitudes we find the heart and the soul of the Christian faith, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I would, I would agree with that, I think. But I think oftentimes we understand what that means poorly. Because we read those passages and we try and understand what it means to emulate those things. What does it mean to be Jesus spiritually bankrupt and why, why should I aspire to that? You know, what is it, why, would you, why would you want me to mourn Jesus? Why would you want me to be hungry and thirsty? Why would you want me to be persecuted? Are these things that I should aspire to on purpose? If this is the heart of the Christian message, then what do I do with that? As I said, I think it is in many ways the heart, but I think we misunderstand. Dallas Willard puts it this way. It says, the Beatitudes, this prologue to the Sermon on the Mount, says, in particular, these are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told that they are better off for being poor, spiritually bankrupt, or for mourning, or for being persecuted, and so on. Or that the conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God or man. Nor are the Beatitudes indications of who will be on top after the revolution, quote-unquote. They are instead, they are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting. Again, this mass of humanity before Jesus. Drawn from this immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through the personal relationship to Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him the rule of God from the heavens is truly available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. That are beyond all human hope. And so again he begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. And today we're going to, that's a sermon in itself, obviously, but today we're going to jump that. We're going to talk about what it means to mourn. And what it means to be comforted. 
we see that for the poor in spirit, for the, for the spiritually bankrupt, the good news is that when it comes to overcoming that spiritual poverty, it's not about the strength they're able to muster for ourselves or, or will ourselves into, but it's about the life and the strength and the flourishing that Jesus freely offers us in spite of ourselves. And I want to press from that into this reality, the experience we have of mourning and the promise of comfort that Jesus offers to everyone who mourns. And as Andrew has referred to multiple times this morning, it is, it is timely. It's kind of been a rough six weeks for humanity, it feels like. You know, the, our, our, our present, if there's any, any doubt about the brokenness of our world, our present news cycle has been done a pretty good job, a pretty good apologetic for brokenness. You know, I live in Rochester. Rochester is the home of James Foley, recently uh, made quite famous by the way he died. Um, we have Ferguson. We have an emergency, uh, emerging genocide in Iraq. We have the suicide of Robin Williams. All these things that have filled our Twitter feeds and Facebooks and news headlines for weeks and weeks now. It's been been kind of a rugged six weeks. And Jesus says, there's much that is in our, in our world that is mournful. I think we can see that. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What does that look like? You know, in the grand scheme of human relationships, I think that there is nothing more difficult than these two challenges. To mourn well and to comfort well those who are mourning. I think in the context of relationships, I don't think there's anything more difficult, challenging than that. To be able to mourn well and to comfort well those who are mourning. As Americans particularly, for those of us here who identify that way, uh, we are, I think, culturally speaking, terrible at both those things. We don't know how to mourn. And so we don't really know how to comfort one another either. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of reasons uh, for that struggle to be sure. But underneath it, this is my hypothesis, underneath it it seems that one of the main problems is that at its core, at, it, at the foundational definition of mourning, mourning is about loss. It's about losing something about losing a piece of yourself, losing some elemental value, something that your heart has clung to, is about mourning, feeling that loss. That is what mourning is. And that runs contrary to the, the, uh, the cultural narrative of our, of our culture, of America. Because I think our cultural narrative, using broad brushstrokes, it's about victory. Right? It's about winning. The cultural narrative, the American cultural narrative is about overcoming adversity, being faced with wilderness and adversity and, the, and challenge and pressing through those things to make a life, to carve out a life for oneself, to bootstraps and, and all that goodness. It's about victory. It's about winning. It's about overcoming obstacles. And so when it happens that someone within our culture, within our society stumbles on that anticipated path to victory, just winning at life. 
when we experience a loss that leaves us crippled for a time on the side of that road, our culture doesn't really know what to do with that. We just don't. We don't know how to handle loss. I mean, just to think about it in, our, in a personal way, is there anything that makes us personally feel more awkward or powerless than coming face to face with someone who is mourning, like really mourning? Is there any more powerless feeling than that? I mean, maybe it's a friend who has recently experienced a loss of a loved one, a death in the family. Maybe they just found out that they were cheated on or served divorce papers. Maybe they've been unceremoniously laid off and they're not sure how they're going to provide for their family. You're confronted with genuine loss. We quickly find ourselves at a loss for words. We just don't know what to say. But even worse than that is the the moments when we try. (laughs) We try to find comforting words to say and just end up saying the most terribly trite empty things, even with the best intentions. You know, not to be too heavy-handed, but what do you say to a friend who just found out that their four-year-old child's going to die of cancer? <laughs> what do you say? What do you, what do you tell a parent whose teenage son just got shot down in the streets? What do you tell an Iraqi father whose family just got wiped out due to an emerging genocide? What what do you say? I mean, imagine for a moment that these, this is someone you care about. This is someone you know. This is someone who, whose heart is being ripped out by unspeakable circumstance as they stand before you, as they speak, and they're coming to you, their friend, for a comforting word. What do you say? You know, the truth is that sometimes... More often than not, when a word is a thing we need most desperately, words are the one thing we just don't have. And the reason is we, we know that no matter what we say, we, it can't bring back that person. It can't bring back that elemental value that's been lost No matter what we say, no matter how eloquent we may possibly be, there's nothing we can do. And so we say, I'm so sorry. Even though we're not apologizing for anything. Or worse, we we try and find something, we try to fill that void by saying something philosophical and profound. Like... Well, we, we just need to trust that everything happens for a reason. Or, you know, God must really think you're strong because you know he wouldn't give us any more than we can handle, right? Ouch. I just have to be honest that it, our bad theology becomes most glaringly obvious at the worst possible times. Doesn't it? 
You know, so if we are powerless and at very best wordless in the face of genuine suffering and loss and mourning, we have the question is, how might we ever hope to find and offer comfort to one another? When a piece of ourself has been lost, how might we ever hope to be made whole again? Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. And to understand what that means and what, what Jesus is intending by that and how that works, we're going we're gonna to look at another story in Scripture. We're going to go to John chapter 11. We're going to watch Jesus himself engage with death and loss and grief. And we're going to observe Jesus as he offers and embodies this, this hope and this comfort that he promises. And as we do that, as we dig into that story and as it intersects with our own story, we're going to find that there can be comfort in mourning because we know that in the love of Christ, we do not mourn alone. And in the victory of Christ, we will not mourn forever. In the love of Christ, we do not mourn alone. In the victory of Christ, we will not mourn forever. We're going to be in chapter, John chapter 11 for most of this morning. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there with me. But the story goes something like this. In John chapter 11, we find the story of the death of a man named Lazarus. Which, as many of you know, has a bit of a surprise ending, and we'll get to that in a moment. But to begin, it unfolds like this. Jesus, he is again, he's traveling around, he is teaching, he's ministering, he's healing the sick, he is freeing the spiritually oppressed. When a word is sent to him that this man, Lazarus, is sick, has fallen dangerously ill. And scripture tells us that Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, and by all accounts, these were some of Jesus' closest personal friends. In fact, the message that Mary and Martha sent along to Jesus was simply this. It was, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. And John presses that point further. A couple of verses later, he reiterates that. He says that, that Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. And so while there are always a lot of people around Jesus pretty much all the time, it's pretty clear that these folks were not just a few more faces in the crowd. These are people for whom Jesus had a close personal connection. But for reasons that are not immediately clear, Jesus, when he receives this message, he does not immediately rush to the side of Lazarus. In fact, they were told that after receiving that urgent message, he stayed where he was for two more days. And by the time that he and his disciples finally packed up and headed towards Bethany where Lazarus had lived, Lazarus was already dead. Which raises questions for us. Why? Why, why did he stay away? Why did he not come sooner? Why, why did this happen? Those are questions we're going to have to seek answers for in time. But whatever the case may be, from the story we know that as Jesus heads towards Bethany, 
We know that at this point he is no longer headed to a hospital to visit a sick man. He's headed to a funeral home to mourn a dead man. And whatever the circumstances and questions may be around the timing of Jesus' arrival, this is something we cannot miss. We cannot miss the significance of this. And that is that when Jesus arrives, Jesus mourns. Jesus does mourn. And that is incredibly significant. In verse 32 of John 11, John tells us this. He says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying. You know, I had the, both the, the blessing and the challenge to have grown up in a church-going family, have grown up um, going to church, and as, a, uh, as church kids uh, doing memory verse exercises and, and, and such things growing up, John 11.35 was always a perennial favorite. Um, because it's a really easy verse to memorize. Because it's only two words. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five, done and done, right? And I remember, I remember joking about that as like an eight year old kid, whatever. That we might struggle with these kind of longer, more complex verses, but at least we got John eleven thirty five. We got that one down. You know, we might not have had a, a clue about its context or its meaning, but it was an easy one to check off a list. But that being said, for a verse so quickly mastered by Sunday school kids everywhere, you could build a doctoral thesis on these two words. Three syllables. Jesus wept. Because as Jesus weeps, with and for his loved ones, we find ourselves introduced, theologically speaking, to the suffering sovereign. And all that is to say that in Jesus, we see the God, and I understand this, the God for whom all things, for, for the universe itself, for whom life and death and creation, that God for whom all those things spins around in the palm of his hand, in the small of his hand, that God, we see this God crumpling to his knees, shedding tears, tears streaming down his face, mourning, weeping. It's incredible. Sharing in the suffering 
of his people to the point that he is overcome. And this, this image will just not let me go. The thought that in Jesus we see that God, all-powerful from before, all things, living in unassailable glory, that God, his lower jaw starts to quiver. And his eyes glass over with tears and he loses it in front of all these people and they say, see how he loved him. It's a paradox and it's profound, but it's in this discomfort of Jesus that we find hope for our own comfort restored. Because as we see in Jesus, the heart of a creator God, who compelled by love, enters into and inhabits the suffering of loss and mourning alongside of us, we come to understand that no matter where we are, we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we have lost and how broken that loss has left us, we know that we have never been left to mourn alone. We have never been left to mourn alone. You know, words fail us when we're faced with a crippling loss. And we know that more often than not, what our friends in mourning need from us and what we need from friends as we are mourning is not some hasty or ill-conceived philosophy of suffering. They just need our presence. They need to know that they are not alone. They need to know that there there are other people who are willing to bear that burden of grief alongside of them. And that, that, that is what good friends do. That in times of loss, they will bear the burden of grief along with us. And if there's any comfort to be granted to be gained from the presence and the compassion of friends in our seasons of grief, how much more may we be comforted by the knowledge that should even every earthly friend fail us, the very creator of the universe still remains at our side on his knees sharing our tears. You see, it's in the love of Christ. In the love of Christ, we know that we do not mourn alone. We may mourn, but we do not mourn alone. And that, that is incredible in and of itself. It is totally unheard of. It is, in fact, literally blasphemy in many other systems of faith and thought that the creator of the universe would suffer and mourn and shed tears. It's blasphemy. But the God we meet in Jesus is a God who suffers with us and shares our tears. And Isaiah refers to Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely, he says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus shares our suffers and he mourns. Well, the truth is that that is only one half of the equation. As profound as it is, and it is profound, the tears of Christ on its own is not enough. It's not enough to make hope possible. Because if Jesus is only a co-sufferer, if all he has to offer are his tears, then he is little more than just a really good friend. And he is that, but he is more than that. He is oh so more than that. He is infinitely more than that. You see, Jesus has tears, but as it turns out, the tears of God are, in as much as they are like our tears, they are also profoundly different from our tears. As we continue to unpack this story around the death of Lazarus, we discover how different they are. Because our mourning, you see, human mourning, it is an expression of sadness and heartache that comes from being in a place of powerlessness and loss. The reason we mourn is because we have lost something or someone that we have absolutely no power to bring back. We have no power to restore to ourselves. And so our tears, they are tears of emptiness. They are tears of frustration. They are tears of injustice. Human mourning, for all intents and purposes, is a sadness that has no place to go for consolation. There's no escape from the emptiness. And so what happens is that our, in our mourning, we, we end up depressed or we end up destructively angry until such a time as our heart just gets tired. And we resign ourselves to the fact that there's nothing that can be done. And so we do our best to move on and carry on and just trusting that the passage of time will dull the pain. That's how we deal with loss. And Jesus has tears, but they are not tears of powerlessness. In fact, they are quite the opposite. When Jesus hears that Lazarus has fallen ill, Scripture tells us that Jesus, he tells his disciples, he says, this illness will not lead to or end in death. He says it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Of course, we know then that Jesus stays where he is for two more days and Lazarus succumbs to his illness and he dies. And then Jesus and his disciples finally arrive in Bethany and when they do so, it is in the midst of of a community that is in a season of mourning. And as we discussed already, the heart of Jesus, John, John tells us, is deeply moved. He is troubled and he mourns. Jesus weeps. But this is a place where our English translations of the originally Greek New Testament can be a little misleading because where our Bibles tell us that Jesus is deeply moved. The word that's being translated there is embrimaomai. And the emotional thrust of that word is really more akin to a prophetic anger. 
It is righteous indignation. The, the image associated with that word is like the, the snorting of horses. It is this nostril flaring indignation. And it's as if John is telling us that Jesus, he sees the pain of these people whom he loves. He comes face to face with the evil of death and loss that is thrust upon the good creation of God and laid waste to these persons created in love and to reflect the image of God. And his response? It's important that we know that Jesus doesn't just get weepy. No. Jesus gets heart-rendingly pissed, if you'll forgive the expression. Heart-rendingly pissed off. And this Jesus who proclaims that he himself is the resurrection and the life that humanity's hopes hang upon, with tears still in his eyes, he walks up to death itself and just throws down. This is the image. Jesus just backhands death. He stands up to the grave of his friend and he calls into that, 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 that void of darkness and loss and declares the authority to overturn death. And Lazarus, Jesus says, come out. And Lazarus gets up and he walks out of his own grave. Do you think the, the tone of that party changed a little bit? <laughs> they had to order more sandwiches just to keep it going. But what we realize is that even though you and I may be powerless to stand up to death, powerless to restore those things that have been lost and have left us broken and a little less whole, Jesus is not. He is the one who declares victory over death and brokenness and he is the one who will restore all things to rights. And as dramatic as this whole Lazarus episode may be, this is only a picture, it is a preview of what Jesus will one day work over all creation itself, made possible by the price he paid and the victory secured through his own death and resurrection. And the horizon of that victory is described for us by the same author in a later book in Revelation chapter 21 when John says, I saw a new heaven, this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And the, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he says, He will wipe away every tear. From their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they will be comforted. And you see it is in light of this victory of Jesus 
that we can believe and cling to the knowledge that in the end, even the most unspeakable losses will be completely overcome and undone. It isn't that the Bible isn't painting a picture that just, you know, heaven is just going to be so nice that we'll simply forget the pain, that we'll simply forget the losses of this present life. But the image is of a victory so complete that it doesn't just claim the future, it claims the past. The victory of Jesus goes backwards as well as forwards. He does not only redeem our future, our past, our past as well as redeemed. And one day in his glory and his utter victory, he will redeem and restore our past too. And that's why Jesus can say, blessed are those who mourn. Because he knows that when heaven crashes into earth, the deeper our wounds have gone, the deeper his healing will go. They will be comforted. C.S. Lewis put it this way, that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even agony into glory. In the Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien envisions a time, as he puts it, when everything sad is going to come untrue. I think that's such a beautiful image. That in the fullness of things, in the fullness of Christ's victory, one day everything sad will become untrue. This is the victory of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, but God has prepared for those who love him. For those who love him. The truth is that sometimes when a word, a profound word, a comforting word, is the thing we need absolutely most. Words are the one thing we just don't have. And that's okay. It's okay. Because Jesus, Scripture tells us, has the last word. And that word is healing. It is comfort. It is restoration. That word is Jesus himself. And the temptation for us, though, particularly in our, in our social media age, I think, is to, is to, even though we don't have words, to force words, to find something to say in the face of suffering and mourning, no matter how trite or terrible or empty that something may end up being. But what our world, what our friends, what we need... It's not a quick and empty word. What, what our world needs is not a hundred million Twitter users jumping to a hundred million bully pulpits, raging and, ra and railing and offering saccharine platitudes. What our world needs is a people who are practiced in the ministry of faithful, tearful, but hope-filled presence. We're called to be a people in whose tears the world may see the tears of Christ. 
and in whose hope the world may see the victory of Christ, a people who are willing to sit in the humility of wordless tension long enough to let Jesus speak his word of compassion and victory over and through our mourning. In the end, we know that there can be comfort in mourning because we know that in the love of Christ, we do not mourn alone. And in the victory of Christ, we will not mourn forever. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. So my brothers and sisters um, who uh, needed to hear uh, the simple and profound message that they are not alone. Lord, I ask you make uh, yourself known to them. Lord, in just a a powerful way uh, in our last few minutes together. I pray for uh, folks here today who just need to feel something that... uh, I don't know, we prayed for Ferguson this morning and they were like, wait, what is that about? They've insulated themselves with entertainment to such an unbelievable degree that they don't feel anymore. They are less than human. I pray for my brothers and sisters and friends who are here today who, who actually need to feel like pain so they, they might wake up to what the world really is and that they might be able to join it in its healing. Pray for those who have friends who are mourning. Pray for those who are struggling with how to make sense of all of the the pain, of all of the situations that were mentioned, Lord, today. Pray, Lord, you grow our trust in what you are doing. I pray, Lord, that our hope would be found in you actually, not just in word. That we would learn the way of presence. We would learn the way of being able to sit in the, in the promises of, our, of the future where you are putting all things together. And that that might rush backwards into the present like the scripture describes. And it might shape our here and now, like right now. That in light of that kind of hope, we can endure the worst sorts of things. Think of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted by ISIS. Just the stories that are coming out of there of people just willing to go to their death who are, who are heart-wrenchingly just, just they, are, they, are, they are sad and beaten down and, and broken and have so much to mourn for. And yet they are seeing so much hope in the midst of the situation solely because of what they know uh, you are doing in their midst because of what you have done. That they, they can go to their death 
with both tears in their eyes and hope for tomorrow. Thank you that we do not mourn like those who have no hope. And so, for whatever situation, Lord, for whatever things are actually happening in our hearts right now, we offer up, we offer up this prayer to you. 